today on Gikidimim Powers. What I usually tell my clients is, no matter how much you want to strangle the other side or no matter how angry you get, it's always easier to just blame your lawyer. You say, well, I understand that you want this, this, and this, but my lawyer says that I can't do that. And you know how lawyers are, because no one likes lawyers anyway. So we don't mind if more people hate us because people hate us no matter what. So blame your lawyer and you can always work with the other side and act like, oh, this person is, you know, they're the problem, it's not me. You are listening to Geekdom Empowers, the podcast about people empowered through their geekiness. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hasson and you are listening to Geekdom Empowers. Geekdom Empowers is the podcast that highlights creators and fans in the geek world who do not often get to be highlighted. It's these people, it is us, who make up almost all of the geek world. By talking to each person, by hearing their stories, Geekdom Empowers creates a huge, world-sized quilt of all the geeks around the world. Each person is a story, and together we are one story, one big, huge, giant, world-sized quilt. The Geekverse Quilt. Today we're talking to Gamal Hennessy, comic book lawyer, business consultant, and author of the book, The Business of Independent Comic Book Publishing. I don't know if you know how lawyers uh, think or talk. But a conversation that, that goes deep into one subject include what if this happened and what if this happened and what happens in case of this? What happens in case of that? And it is the opposite of boring. And what happens is we end up covering a lot of very interesting subject matter because all we're talking about today is comic books. Today, Gamal will talk about his journey, about web comics, indie comics, Kickstarters, NFTs and comics, the rights of artists and writers, uh, optioning your comic book, and so many more things. This is a conversation you don't want to miss. Enjoy! Can you tell me a little bit about your uh, origin story? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I started, I graduated law school in 1996. And at the time, I was reading a lot more comics than I was the books that I should be reading in law school. That actually turned out to be a good thing because an associate of mine was offered a job at a Japanese animation company and manga company um, in New York. And she did not want the job. But since she knew I was so into the comic book art form, she sent me instead, and I got the job. I worked at that company, which was Central Park Media, for about four years. Um, we dealt almost exclusively with Japan, bringing in manga and animation from that country to the United States and to Europe. So when Marvel decided that they wanted to actually break into the Japanese market, they needed someone who already knew how to negotiate with those companies because it's a very specific type of negotiating process. So Marvel um, headhunted me out of that uh, manga company and I became the international publishing manager for Marvel for about two years. And one of the things I, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. 
Well, one of the things I had to do when I was there was um, had to negotiate a lot of the talent agreements for the comic books that were being made in the States. And the situation that I ran into over and over again was I would give a writer or an artist a contract and I would tell them, bring this contract to your lawyer so that they could actually look it over and let me know what they thought. But I knew that that person, the person sitting across from me didn't have a lawyer and they knew they didn't have a lawyer and that they were really gonna sign whatever I put in front of them because they had no leverage. So when I left Marvel, which was about 2003, 2000, yeah, 2003, um, I started a company called Creative Contract Consulting. And the only point of that company at the time was to explain to creative people what they were signing when they signed a contract, because many of them would sign it and have no idea what they were giving up, what they had to do, or anything along those lines. They really, because so many people in comics are in the industry because they love comics, they really didn't want to do something like read the contract. That was something that was they felt was getting in the way. Um, yeah. I did that for a, quite well, a few let me, years. Let me stop you for a second. I want to go back like mm -hmm. a few steps. Like, I just want to break down the steps of how things happened because uh -huh. most of the listeners do not, uh, this is new to most people. Uh, okay. Marvel headhunted you. So how does that uh -huh. happen? Like what, what did they do? Well, basically when Marvel, because the situation that created the, the job opportunity was Marvel was attempting to expand into international markets. They had a very large percentage of the American market in terms of comic books, and they had significant deals in Europe and South America. But because there's so much manga already available in Japan, it was very difficult to just for Marvel to just show up in Japan and decide, well, they are going to start selling comics there. They needed to develop markets. They needed to create partnerships. They needed to actually make deals with publishing companies that were already in Japan. I, when they were having those conversations, a person who was at one of those meetings was a friend of mine. He actually worked at the manga company and then he went to Marvel. And as soon as he heard they needed someone with a legal background to negotiate contracts with the Japanese, there was only one person he could think of. So he told them, I know a person. Mm -hmm. They said, okay, call him. And they, they called me in. And once they realized I had the experience that they were looking for, and I could complete the task that they needed completed, they hired me. That was basically the headhunting scenario. Got it. And when they were, when you were sitting in front of people who did not have lawyers, like what were you offering them? Like what were, like were you offering them? To, yeah, you know. What are the, the usually what you get offered when you work for a company like Marvel or DC or any one of the larger companies is what's called a work for hire or a freelance contract. That means they're hiring you to draw the comic, write the comic, lettering, coloring, flatting, production design, all the creative elements of the comic because a company like Marvel does not have rooms full of artists and writers just sitting around waiting to make comics. What they do is they own the actual characters and then they will hire someone else on a freelance basis to create all the comics in exchange for money up front. So the artist or the writer will not own anything that they make. They will actually just get money. And if that character that they create or the story that they create goes on to sell 
a million copies of the comic, they only really get, in many cases, just the money that they got up front. They don't get anything extra. If that story gets turned into a movie or t-shirts or posters or toys, most of the time, those people do not get anything extra. They only get what they got up, what they're paid up front, which is referred to in comics as a page rate. Right. I, was, I was under the impression that people who invent, maybe it's just Americans, maybe I got the wrong impression, who invent uh, characters own a little piece of that character, meaning they get money whenever it's used. And depending on who you are and how important you are when you sign the contract, you can get a thing what's referred to as back-end participation, which means, let's say I hire you to do a Spider-Man comic, but then you create a new villain for Spider-Man, and then that villain goes on to be in movies and everything else. If you were, if you had enough leverage when you were negotiating the deal, you could get a small piece of the back-end participation. So let's say if you made a character, let's say you made Carnage, because there was a movie recently about yeah. Carnage, which is a Spider-Man villain. Let's say you made Carnage and you had a good back-end participation deal. Maybe when the movie gets made, you get, you know, a small percentage of the production budget, or you just get a flat fee. Maybe they just gave you $20,000 or $50,000. When the t-shirts get made, Maybe you get a piece of that deal. Maybe you get 1% of what's coming in, or maybe you get a flat fee. There is a way for you to actually get extra money as the character is used more and more, but you will not own the character. If you make a character for a company like Marvel and DC, the company is going to own the character. You may get money for it, but that's not the same as owning it. That's just getting, getting a piece of the pie. Now, there are other types of contracts. There's something called a creator-owned contract, where depending on the way the contract is written, if something gets made, then you automatically get a significantly more portion of what gets made, of the money generated, and you actually may have a say in what does or does not happen with that um, property. Something like, if you look at Mark Millar, who has several um, programs on Netflix, Umbrella Academy, and I guess it was Lock and Key, one of his. He has several deals for on Netflix, but he is was in a position to actually get a lot more because he, when he made those deals, he had a lot more leverage. He had a lot more control of how the contract was going to be structured. When I was first working for Marvel, the people sitting in front of me 90% of the time had very little control of the how the contract was going to be structured because they were either brand new creators or they didn't have a lot of leveraging power or they simply didn't have a lawyer and didn't read the contract. So they didn't know what they could or could not ask for. And when, when you were sitting in front of, uh, uh, of people, did you feel like... I'm asking, like, why? It seems an obvious question, but I do want to know the answer. Uh, did you feel uh, for them? Did you think they were getting the bad, you know, bad end of the deal? Is that why you went into? Or I so what I saw was an opportunity because people were being underserved from a business and legal standpoint. But that was that is actually something that is fundamental to 
the history of comic books in America, unfortunately, ever since you had the initial deal for Superman in 1939, they went into that, the people who created, the gentleman who created Superman did not have attorneys when they went in and did that deal. Or they did not have attorneys who understood the business that they were negotiating in. And therefore, mm -hmm. they sold the rights to Superman for a significantly small sum of money. When Superman went on to be create to generate billions and billions of dollars over the next, what is it, 70, 80 years, those two individuals did not get any kind of compensation for that. In fact, they actually died. Um, well, their situation improved over time, but that was because of several lawsuits and several different groups of people trying to help them. And that is something that has continued, unfortunately, throughout the history of comics in America. Many creators, again, because they love comics and they want to be in comics, are willing to accept very bad business deals because their real goal is they want to make comics. And they hope someone will actually give them money for the comics they make, but in many cases, no one does. And then they, they find themselves in a situation where they've given up the rights to the thing that they've spent years creating. So in an attempt to help them out, because I feel like if more people, if more people could actually benefit from what they created, then more people would actually make comics. Because I love comics and I want more people to make comics, I feel like if I help them, they help me. And what do you think, what is the logic of big companies like Marvel and DC to create contracts like that that don't actually help uh, you know, the artists grow and have some kind of power and ability to, to live a better life? Well, the logic there is the logic of abundance. Because there, for every artist or writer, and this was, this was true up until at least 2018, 2019, every artist and writer who gets, in a, who gets an opportunity to work for a company like Marvel, most of the time they grew up reading Marvel and DC comics. They love the characters, they love the ideas, they love the stories. And it might've been a goal for them for 10, 15, 20 years to work for this company. So they know, Marvel and DC know, when they hand the contract to people, these people, the only thing they really want deep down is they wanna, they wanna write Spider-Man. They wanna draw Superman. And even if they actually say, well, I actually want a better deal, I want to negotiate a better contract, Marvel and DC know that for every person they give an opportunity to, there's 30 other people willing to take that deal. So they don't have to negotiate a better deal with anybody because for every person that rejects their contract, they can just give the deal to someone else. And in their mind, the value is not in the artist or the writer. The value is in the character and they already own the character. So if they, let's say you and I both get offered to write for X-Men, but you want a good deal and I'll take any deal because I just really want to write for X-Men then they're gonna reject you and they're gonna take me because I will take a bad deal. So they can always offer a bad deal until you get to a point where no one wants to work for Marvel or DC unless they get a good deal. And we are, I believe we're very far from that point. 
Have you have you felt there's a change now that people are? There is a change primarily because of technology and growth. Because when I was working for Marvel, it was very difficult to start your own publishing company and get your own marketing and distribution and build a business like that. Because um, this was back in 2002, 2003. But in 2021, you are, because of things like the internet and Kickstarter and you know Amazon, and all these different methods and technologies and business structures that you could use, you could build a comic book company in your home in about a year and a half, two years, and you can own everything. So there's several paths that you can take now to be successful in comics that don't involve working for Marvel or DC at all. If you don't want to, you could build a company that is primarily distributing things on Kickstarter and then distributing them on Amazon. You could have a business model that is primarily distributing to bookstores and libraries. You could be distributing to um, conventions. You could be doing all of your marketing online. You could be, you can have your printing done domestically or in Asia or in Canada, and all of it can be run from your phone pretty much, you could go out and hire talent from around the world because you can actually access people in any country, people who have the skill to actually make comics. So you can understand how to bring the cost down, how to actually make a profit. And like I said, in the end, own everything. So there's a shift for people who they may not necessarily want to work for Marvel or DC, or even if they do, they don't want to work for them for that long. They want to work for them just long enough so that they can get some credibility in the industry. Because if you say, okay, I worked on Daredevil and now I'm going to make my own comic, all the people who liked you on when you did Daredevil, a significant portion of them may follow you to your own comic and you get yourself a better situation. So it's not the way in the 80s or 90s where you had people like Chris Claremont and John Byrne and people who worked for Marvel as a freelancer for 15, 20 years and never came out with their own thing because that's not the the way the market actually worked back then. It's a different market now. So you can do a lot of different things and have no actual interaction with a big company like Marvel or DC if you don't want to. Some people still want to do that. And there's plenty of people for Marvel to use in that regard. Yeah, I have have, uh, interviewed quite a lot of... uh indie comic book creators and none of them want to work for Marvel and DC. They all have their own thing, each one, you know, web comics or Mm -hmm. shows and stuff like that. And some Mm -hmm. of them have been doing it for more than 20 years. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so let's go then back in time to you created your company. And Mm -hmm. what happened then? Well, once I created the company, yeah, well, once I created the company, I did the contract translation or the contract explanation for artists and writers for a certain number of years. But then as technology changed, people started coming to me and say, okay, well, I, I'm not doing a contract with a Marvel or DC or Image or IDW. I'm, I need to hire a writer. What kind of contract do I need? Or I'm building a comic book company with another person. 
what kind of contract do I need? Or I'm doing this kind of distribution or this kind of marketing. So as the industry change and more and more people, like you were talking about, got opportunities to do their own projects and build their own companies, I they all need, realized they needed more and more legal help. So I provided more and more legal assistance until about 2016, when I realized that they a lot of these comic creators needed something more than legal assistance. A lot of them needed business assistance as well, because what I was doing is I was bringing them to a certain point. They had all they had a company that was legally created. They had all their contracts. They had all their intellectual property filing done, but then they still didn't understand project management, or they didn't understand marketing, or advertising, or sales, mm -hmm. or financing, or taxes, or anything else. So I broadened out the services that I offered to actually help them understand the entire business process. That's when I, I wrote this book here, The Business of Independent Comic Book Publishing, that I released in 2020 in a Kickstarter. Uh, and it got, it was very well received because there's a, a lot of books on the market about the creative side of comics, how to write, how to draw, how to letter. But there isn't really anything about, you know, how to actually develop a profit and loss statement for your comics to make sure that your comic is actually making money. Or how to, which, there's several different types of companies that you can create in North America. Well, how do you pick the right one? And what does that actually do for you? And how does that help? this book and the other courses that I teach help people understand that so they can make the right decisions for whatever comic book that they're making. Because the, the good thing about comics and probably the bad thing about comics is there's no one path to success. Whatever it is that you define success for yourself to be, there's a lot of different decisions that you have to make to get there. And each one of those decisions actually has an impact on the next decision. So instead of having a one size fits all kind of idea, we kind of open up all the options for people and let them decide how they want to pursue their definition of success in comics and help them get where they want to go. And how do you like, how do you help them in uh, sales? Because you mentioned sales. What I do overall from all of the different business aspects is I have, I started a school in September called the Comics Publishing Institute. What the Comics Publishing Institute does is actually breaks down all the different elements of comics in all the different business models. So whether you're talking about running an independent comic book company, or you're talking about being a freelance artist, or you're talking about getting a creator-owned deal, or doing licensing for film and television and things like that, we actually look at every aspect of the industry in a class that I will do twice a month. And then... And as that class progresses, you can actually learn the different aspects of the business. You can ask questions. We bring in experts from different fields in comics, interview them so that people can understand the perspective of someone who actually has worked in that small segment of the industry their entire lives. And we have ongoing question and answer sessions every week. So as you're building your comic and as you're building your comic book company, if anything comes up, any news or any problem you're having specifically with your comic, you could actually find this group of people and we can actually talk about it. So you can actually help you understand how things are going to change moving forward. So like just this morning, I think, um, 
Dark Horse got purchased by a, I think it was a Swedish video game company. So when we, when the next time we have our discussions in the school, which I guess will be tomorrow night, we'll kind of talk about, well, if your goal is to build a company to primarily flip it and sell it to another company, well, how do you position yourself to do that? What is it that you have to do five years, 10 years, 15 years down the line so that you can be in a position to be bought out basically? And you maybe you walk away with a few million dollars and they're gonna go take the company you built and turn it into something else because that is a goal for some people in the school so we will talk about those things as the news comes up. So to answer your question about sales, sales is one of the many things that we talk about in the school mm -hmm. on an ongoing basis. I can tell you the one time I really needed a lawyer, I, could, mm -hmm. I actually created a small comic book company mm -hmm. uh, and uh, someone optioned, someone to, a production company wanted to option uh, one mm -hmm. of the comic books. And I, I got a lawyer for that because I didn't know anything about the rights. And it was a, a harrowing process, not because of the lawyer. The lawyer was great and she helped a lot. But uh, the other side canceled, you know, you wanted to strangle them every time you got an email from them. And then, and then I met the guy and he's like the sweetest grandfather type that you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. But you want to kill him when he writes you emails. Anyway, that was, uh, that's my experience in that. Well, see, it's good that you actually had a lawyer in that situation, because then what I usually tell my clients is no matter how much you want to strangle the other side or no matter how angry you get, it's always easier to just blame your lawyer. You say, well, I understand that you want this, this and this. But my lawyer says that I can't do that. And you know how lawyers are, because no one likes lawyers anyway. So we don't mind if more people hate us, because people hate us no matter what. So blame your lawyer, and you can always work with the other side and act like, oh, this person is, you know, they're the problem. It's not me. Forcing me. Uh, what kind of uh, issues have, been, have you been... Uh handling lately or been seeing lately that you can talk about? There's a lot of people who are in, who are trying to understand and figure out how their business is going to be affected by things like NFTs yeah. and how their thing, how their business is going to be affected by things like crowdfunding. Because in the past two or three years, a lot of independent comic book publishers have realized that crowdfunding is the one of the more efficient ways to reach people and get their comic book quickly released without having to go through another publishing company, without having to put in a lot of their own money into like releasing a book. But what they're realizing now is that it's not a way to actually sustain you cannot make a living that way because the number of releases that you can have in a year doesn't actually equal like a livable wage. Let's say you, you can make, you could do three Kickstarters a year and each Kickstarter gets you like $20,000. Well, okay, that's $60,000. But if it costs you 30, $40,000 to get the book together, 
Well, now you only have 20 and you can't live off $20,000. So how do you actually go to that next step where you now are making money off the comic book after the Kickstarter? What we call post crowdfunding distribution. Did you decide to sell it in a Amazon store? Did you decide to sell it on your website? Are you selling it through Ingram? Are you selling it to bookstores or libraries or something else to actually generate more money between Kickstarters so that you can actually have more money to work with? Um, the other issue, like I said, NFTs. Some people are trying to figure out what an NFT is, why anyone would want one. Can they make NFTs? How can they sell NFTs? Should they be selling NFTs? And all of these issues are actually coming up now because so many people are looking for new ways to actually generate revenue. And they're wondering, is NFTs a good or bad idea for their particular business? Because like I said, every business has their own model, has their own path. And as new things pop up, you have to decide, well, based on what I want to do and where I want to go, how does NFTs fill into that? How does anything fit into that? Do I want to get involved in mobile gaming? Do I want to get involved in, um, you know, foreign language um, translations? What is, how do I want, which platform should I put my digital comics on? There's always a lot of questions that people have, but the NFT and the crowdfunding is the biggest one that I've seen over the past mm, 12 to 15, 18 months. I'm guessing by looking, I've, I've been searching the same thing. And mm -hmm. it looks to me like in a few years, NFTs will be the new type of crowdfunding. crowdfunding. That like, like uh, basically you still buy, you, you know, you, you, you give $100 or $500 or whatever to the artist. You also get an NFT. So the artist, if she becomes famous, uh, and something sells, you have you get uh, part of her uh, income. But if you right. sell your NFT, she gets part of your income from that. And that thing funds it. The community funds the artist. The artist funds the community uh, if the artist succeeds. Yes. So that seems to be like the future of the next step in crowdfunding. Yes. Um, it all depends. It depends a lot on the efficiencies in the technology. I believe, because you have a lot of artists and creators who are concerned about how much relative uh, energy it takes to actually generate the NFT. Now, when that actually comes down in the same way that it used to cost however many thousands of dollars to take a painting from Paris and ship it to New York in the, you know, 150 years ago, that was a huge amount of money. Now it's a FedEx package. So it's much less. As NFTs, I believe, come down in price and the energy consumption, when I say price, then more and more people may think, okay, that's something that I might be willing to get into. Or if it becomes just more commonplace, because 10 years ago, 12 years ago, if you told somebody that you were running a Kickstarter, they would look at you very weird because they would not know what it is that you're talking about. Now in comics, if you say you're running a Kickstarter, well, everyone's running a Kickstarter and everybody's completely fine with it. I also saw that you posted uh, on LinkedIn something about uh, um, um, writers talking about the pros and cons of working in other people's universes. 
Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. It's it's that is part of the um, considerations you have to make when you're creating freelance comics, because basically someone is hiring you to tell a story about something that you do not own. So you have to be able to wrap your head around the the rules, the characters, the actual goals of the company, and then create, basically create art on demand. It's not as if you are inspired to make this story about this character who goes, you know, through this struggle. Someone hired you and said, we want you to make a story about a character going through a struggle. But you have to put yourself into that role in a way that is actually entertaining for the reader, satisfying for the publisher, so that you could actually continue to work. And it's a completely different legal and legal business and creative kind of concept rather than making your own character and your own story. Because depending on who you're working for, because the, I think the, the panel that was at C2E2, because I think that's where the article came from, you had one person who was working for Marvel. You had one person who was working for, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I believe it was Hasbro. And then another one working for Star Trek, which I guess is Paramount. So now you're actually dealing with two or three sets of priorities. Because if you're working on a character, let's say for Marvel, it's not just the, the plans that Marvel has for that character in the next two to three years that you have to conform to when writing your story. It's the plans that Disney has for that character two or three years from now so that when you, you can write a story, it could be a very good story, but if it doesn't fit with what those two groups of people want, they're going to reject your story. You have to write it all over again. Whereas if you, like I said, if you had your own story, well, all it has to do is be a good start. And now you can actually release it because those layers of, you are not part of a machine if you're writing your own comics. If you're writing freelance comics, you are part of a machine. And the benefits of that machine is you get paid up front. So if the book sells well, that's great. If the book doesn't sell well, you don't care because you got paid. Whereas if it's your own book and it doesn't sell well, well, okay, you just, it doesn't sell, you, it didn't work. So there's benefits and risks and challenges on both sides. But like, again, depending on what you want to do in comics and what your goal is, it can be the best path to actually just write for someone else. There are quite a few um, fairly high profile writers and artists who make their entire career creating work for someone else. If you look at like Alex Ross, Alex Ross is one of the premier artists of the last two generations in comics. He doesn't have any original characters. He doesn't need any original characters because once he actually takes someone else's character and paints it, it is now a work of art that's worth several thousand dollars. So why make a character? What's the point? But that's his model. His model doesn't, may not work for someone else like um, Todd McFarlane. He only really has one character. But he only needs one character because he is he has printed comics with that character for over 30 years. He now has a world record in the number, the amount of comics he's created and the amount of things that he can do. And he can do anything he wants with that character, but it's his. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. 
And writing comics for other people, drawing comics for other people is one way to do it if you're comfortable with the way that particular business works. Interesting. And last issue I want to tackle, do you have, um, there are thousands, thousands of web, people creating web comics uh, in, in English and also not in English. I also interviewed someone who yes. uh, does that in Finland. And um, are there specific issues that come up uh, with that? There are because the business model for something like a Webtoons or a Tapas is a very different business model than let's say you're doing books for Scholastic or you're doing books for Marvel because the revenue generated in Webtoons primarily is advertising based. So you, if it's basically some similar to creating content for YouTube, you're, you're actually giving the content away for free in many cases, but if you get enough people to actually look at it, then you actually create a, what's a critical mass of eyeballs, what's called a CPM, a cost per thousand, so that your comic generates revenue without you ever having to print it, ship it, store it, or even sell it to anyone, you're still making money. And you could, there's actually, um, if you're, because I have clients who have deals with Webtoons, if your comic generates enough views, then Webtoons itself will give you money to make sure that you keep making comics and they will set up deals with you so that if that comic gets turned into a movie, it's basically, you get an option deal, you get a purchase deal, you get participation in the merchandise, you get, you can build a very significant business, a business that is, from a financial standpoint, bigger than what Marvel and DC is doing. If you actually publish web comics, as long as you understand that the people reading traditional comics and the people reading web comics are not necessarily the same group of people. Web comic people tend to skew younger and they tend to be, there's more um, females in the audience. And it's less about, like in Western comics and American comics, it's mostly superheroes and then maybe some horror and some other stuff. In web comics, there's a lot of different things going on. There's romance, there's drama, there's slice of life. There's a lot of different things. So if you're willing to, or you are inspired to make comics in that space, and you don't want to have to do a Kickstarter, you don't want to have to worry about getting comic books printed in Korea and then shipped to California and then sent to you, you can skip all those things and make a Webtoons comic and have a successful business as long as you are willing to actually work in that space. I think outside of crowdfunding, the Webtoons growth and tapas and things like that is going to be the next major thing in comics because more and more people, especially younger creators, are going to realize that web comics and digital comics are the future. In the same way that in the, the 90s or even in the 2000s, you had people who listened to music, they only would buy records. They would not listen to digital music. And there's still some people like that who they will buy a vinyl record. But those are the vast majority of minority of people. Most people now, Spotify, it's iTunes, it's all digital all the time. And I believe comics is going to go that way sooner or later, where you'll have you'll always have a group of people who want to read the actual physical comic. 
but most people will be reading it on their phones or on their tablets, or it'll be in the inside of their eyeball in the future. I don't know how they're going to read them, but it's going to all be digital. And that's where all the money is going to come from. And that's where all the growth is going to come from. The main, I think the main, the hard thing there is that you have to compete for the attention among thousands of other comic books and you have to find, you have to get those thousands of eyeballs to you. Yes. But you have to do that in regular comics too. You can't just put a comic out and expect people to find it. You have to find that specific group of people that really want to listen to the story you have to tell. We spend a lot of time talking about this when we talk about marketing in the school, is that every comic has a natural group of people that want that story. The the goal is to identify who those people are and then find them so that you can actually interact with them in a way that when your comic comes out, they're excited to read your comic. Mm. It is a mistake, I feel, to put out a comic and then hope that everyone finds it because no one will find it. Because if you're just talking about print comics, there are about a hundred print comics that come out every week. And there are several thousands of digital comics that come out every month. If you just throw a comic out there and you don't target it to a specific group of people before it comes out, you're gonna, your comic will be lost in the noise. It could be a great comic, but if no one reads it, it's a great comic that no one reads. Is there anything else you want to cover or talk about that we didn't cover? The only thing that I think that I that needs to be said is just to go back to a point that I made before. There are a lot of different ways to be successful in comics. And the key is once you find out which way makes most sense for you to pursue that. There's never been a better time to make comics because there's so many different options and there's so many different tools available to you that were not available in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. So the goal is make comics. Every, I believe everyone should make comics, but make the comics that you feel you want to make that actually fit into the idea of success that you have, no matter what that idea of success is, because you don't want to spend time or energy or money pursuing a path that doesn't fit with your definition of success. You know what I mean? So if you don't want to, there's no point struggling to work for Marvel or DC if you don't want to work for Marvel or DC. Realize that sooner rather than later, and then go do the thing that you actually want to do with all of the great tools that are currently available. Right. Great parting words. Uh, where, Where can people find you? Oh, if you, because the name Gamal Hennessy is fairly unique and not a lot of people have it, if you type Gamal Hennessy into Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, even just on Google, you will find me. Um, if you want to actually get a free consultation for any kind of legal aspect for your comics, you can visit my website. It's creativecontractconsulting.com. It's all one word. And you can set up a free consultation. And if you want to find out more about my um, school, also on that website, creativecontractconsulting.com, there's a tab for the Comics Publishing Institute, and you can join that. And 
you can we can have you can have a, a more in-depth ongoing discussion about the business model for your comics on a week-to-week basis. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much to Gamal. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. All the links he was talking about are in the show notes. Now, next time, we will be talking to a guest that is on the cross-section between cosplay and fashion. See you there. What do you think about this episode? Email me, guy.hasson at geekdomimpals.com. Hasson is spelled H-A-S-S-O-N. On Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, we are at geekdomimpals. We're also on YouTube, so search just for geekdomimpals. Uploading new episodes every week because we're catching up. By the way, wait till this episode comes out. Super cool to watch it as well. Our website is at geekdominpals.com. If you are in the mood, check out my other podcast, the Squash Buckler Diaries podcast. That's a type of fantasy you've never seen before, so check that out, the Squash Buckler Diaries podcast. I will see you next time, and for now, have an empowered day.